Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for learners. And this is our new series on stress. This is the Polyvagal series. Um, and I'm super excited about this because I have a special guest host for this series, Dr. Julia Conroy. Um, so Julia, why don't you say hello and give a brief introduction. You're one of our few returning guests and I'm excited <laughs> to do an extended series with you. And then we'll get into um, what we'll be doing in this series. Yeah, I think the few returning guests is more a nod to like my constantly prodding Jordan of what are you going to do next? I can't wait to hear what you come out <laughs> with next. Um, more testament to my clinginess. Um, but I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to be talking about this. Learning about polyvagal theory has really just kind of given me a whole new lens. Um, for a holistic understanding of how our body responds to copes with stress, uh, which has been extremely helpful for me even personally, um, but also as a clinician in the work that I do with clients. Uh, right now I'm a licensed associate counselor at the Joshua Center. Um, I love working with individuals, but also do some relational work. Uh, and then I recently graduated from the University of Arkansas which feels very good to be on this side of it. Um, <laughs> to be on the doctor side instead of the student side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not being a student feels pretty nice over here. Um, and actually polyvagal theory was really central in the research that I did um, for my dissertation, specifically looking at the co-regulatory effects that take place between couples during their uh, counseling process, but also did a little bit of research into, okay, how does polyvagal theory apply to play therapy? Um, just because I see it being so transitory um, to uh, quite a few modalities, just to kind of understanding the, the whole body response, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things about polyvagal theory that I did not get early on, and I'm slowly getting that. Um, and it's also why I'm excited to have right? I mean, you, luckily, somehow, the heavens opened up, and a polyvagal theory expert just, like, descended from the sky. <laughs> like, like, oh, gosh. Like, I would definitely call myself, like, a polyvagal enthusiast. Like, I'm really you excited You did your dissertation on PVT, and you've <laughs> done research on this. This is also a small field. It. Like, you are, you are, this is, this is incredible. <laughs> like, like, oh. I'm excited about it. I'm really interested in it. And, and I think this is why is because I think expertise is just so far out of reach, just because there's always going to be more to learn and apply in this. Um, and I think that's what I really love is when I sense that there's like a certain depth to something where I, I'm never going to get to the bottom of this, but that's exciting to me instead of discouraging because um, I'm always just going to get a little bit closer to rounding out my understanding. And I think, yeah, that polyvagal does that really well. Yeah. So look, the goal of this podcast series is to integrate polyvagal theory with what we know about the stress response. Mm -hmm. So to that end, we're going to use Robert Sapolsky's Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. The latest edition is uh, 2004, and it's the third edition. Um, and... I really like this book and I recommend people get it because when I initially went through and learned about polyvagal theory, there's a 
sort of implicit understanding that you understand how stress impacts your mental health and your physical mm -hmm. health. And so we definitely need to get into the origins of the theory and what the theory says. And we're going to cover some of the basics today. But the other side of that is, is that's almost like, um, I don't know, the, the, the icing on the cake. You got to understand what the cake is made out of first, right? Like, <laughs> like, like what does stress do to our bodies? Mm -hmm. And so Robert Sapolsky's book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, is a great overview of stress in nearly every aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take this book and go through chapter by chapter. Each episode is going to be a chapter in this book um, and really break down how stress impacts our bodies mm -hmm. and our minds. Mm -hmm. um, now, this book was written, the first edition, I think, was 1993, mm -hmm. um, 1994. Um, and it is sort of from a non-polyvagal theory sort of lens, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to get into all of what that means. But I think that's another reason why polyvagal theory from Stephen Porges and then Robert Sapolsky's book on stress really dovetail, right? In, in this book, Sapolsky gives us an overview of stress on all of our systems. And then if you overlay polyvagal there on top, you get to update, upgrade um, what we now understand about stress and the stress response and how that impacts mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, and I think that that's so important. And you've said that phrase a few times, you know, understanding how stress, um, how we respond to it, how it impacts us. And I do, I think that stress is just such an inherent part of our lives that often we don't even recognize it as stress. We, we can definitely see it when there's a big major life decision that we're trying to make or this huge transition that we're trying to cope with or adjust to, or there's a big grief or, or something that, you know, feels really pressing. But I think even, and I think what this book does such a good job of is also kind of acknowledging and honoring the all the small stressors that our body and, and experiences too. The ones that I forget about right away when I'm already running like a few minutes late. So I'm kind of running around the house and uh, like throwing things in my bag. I'm pulling on a shoe as I run out the door and then I turn the corner and it's like, oh great, there's traffic, right? And just the way that our heart rate gets up and I'm not thinking about it the entire day, right? But I've got all these little micro moments where my body's having some sort of stress response. So I think it yeah. does a great job too of acknowledging those moments that can be easy for us to forget about or miss just because we've got bigger stressors coming our way. Um, but kind of acknowledging both, I think is really important to kind of understanding our, our holistic response. Yeah, I think that's right, right? This book really looks at sort of the big traumas that we face, but also like how the every day ordinary stresses also impact us especially when they're chronic yeah mm -hmm. you know one of the things that i've heard stephen porter say a lot that i think is exemplified in this book is the really what well, this is a journey this is a journey of self-discovery this is a journey where we're learning more about ourselves and how we work how we relate to the world and how we relate to others and mm -hmm. so yeah, I think that's what me and you are going to sort of share with people who listen into this, mm -hmm. right? This is our journey to figure out, oh, to learn more about ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's really exciting. Absolutely. So can you start us off with where did polyvagal theory come from? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so Stephen Porges, um, he is, he's an MD. Um, and so has kind of entered in to the medical community initially, but obviously so much of polyvagal theory bleeds into mental health and is so relevant there. And so he published this first paper in 1995 um, and he, talking about how the polyvagal theory basically is his way of understanding how mammals specifically have uh, adjusted to kind of uh, adapt to stressors that are present and specifically looking at the vagus nerve um, that's within the body. And he said that there are three branches to the vagus nerve. Um, and in mammals specifically, three branches because we're more, uh, just more advanced evolutionarily. And so this kind of what was new um, within this premise, within this theory is that the third most sophisticated branch uh, called the ventral vagal complex also, uh, it mitigates, right, this threat response, but it serves to regulate the body's stress response, specifically that um, fight, flight, or freeze, those responses, it serves to regulate the body in those places by calming the body. That's what this third branch is responsible for. And what Poor just said is this branch is activated in social engagement and maybe ventral vagal complex is just too much for, for, uh, people to, to catch on to. So he actually calls it the social engagement system that when the social engagement system is activated, that actually has a soothing regulatory effect on the other branches of the vagus nerve that typically facilitate that freeze response which is the most primitive and you know, activated in mammals during the most threatening, life-threatening circumstances. Um, and then also the uh, fight or flight response as well. The, the third branch, ventral vagal complex or the social engagement system has a regulatory effect on the other two. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was sort of like the first thing that I was like, what? Right, because I think when you're initially taught a lot about stress and how stress impacts our body, you're told that we have two main parts to our autonomic nervous system, right? Mm -hmm. For people who don't know, the autonomic nervous system basically controls the automatic parts of our bodies, mm -hmm. right? Heartbeat, breathing, uh, people dilation, things that are automatic. And we're told that we have two parts, one mm -hmm. that speeds us up, one that slows us down. Mm -hmm. And we are sort of taught also that these two parts work against the, each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that it's really good to slow us down, to be calm, to, um, yeah, instead of being, you know, activated, angry, irritated, and that sort of fight flight when that, that speeds us up. Mm -hmm. But my understanding, you correct me if, if I'm wrong, is like Porges was looking at this and he was studying babies who mm -hmm. um, basically had some for form of like SIDS, right? Mm -hmm. And he says, when, I, when, I, when I'm studying these, these, these children, these babies who are, you know, new to this planet, they also use the part that slows them down, not just to calm them down, 
but mm -hmm. to like stop breathing. Mm -hmm. So I've got to figure out how this thing that we say is really helpful mm -hmm. is hurting these kids. Absolutely. And that's where the polyvagal thing sort of comes in. of like, oh, wait, we think almost as though we've, we've been taught that there's two branches, right? One that mm -hmm. speeds us up and one that slows us down. Mm -hmm. but actually, there's three. Mm -hmm. One that slows us down and helps us to connect. That's the social engagement system. Mm -hmm. One that speeds us up to protect us. And then another that slows us down in a, in a, in a protective way. And that's Absolutely. sort of like the big insight. I think that's sort of what you're saying. Yeah. And, and I think that is what's so revolutionary because of course, when we're first learning about these things, first putting words to them, of course, those explanations are going to be more simple. And we love like a internal battle of, okay, this one's good, this one's bad. But really what Porches is saying is all three are good. All three serve a protective function. All three are ultimately trying to keep us safe. They all have different strategies and how to do it but the entirety of the vagus nerve is meant to keep us safe. Yeah. 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 Just in different ways, right? They have different strategies to, to meet the same goal. Right. And, and that's needed, right? Depending on the stressor that's present, right. I'm going to need different strategies, right? If a bear is coming toward me, a hug from my husband is not going to do much for me. <laughs> I need a different branch to come online and get me out of there uh, or, or to think of something else. Right. And, and so they're really, it's such a good thing. There's a balance in those strategies because the threats that we face as people are so complex, more complex now than they have ever been. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the power in getting curious Um like we're going to in this series is saying, okay, how can I understand each branch more thoroughly in the function that it serves so that I can honor that function instead of fighting against it? Yeah. Beautiful. So, um, you know, Stephen Porter's wrote a white paper that he posted on the polyvagal theory Institute so website. And in that paper, he says there are five big ideas that relate to polyvagal theory, five big implications, five big, um, facets of this mm -hmm. and so I just wanted to sort of go through these so people can mm -hmm. have a basic idea mm -hmm. about what we're talking about as we mm -hmm. move forward and one of the things is sort of the idea of state right he says uh, mm -hmm. autonomic state is the intervening variable mm -hmm. what does that mean Julia what does that mean Dr. <laughs> Conroy yeah and so I, I think what he's really getting at here in that intervening variable um, labeling the autonomic state as that is when like there's a big intervention, like my example, I just said, when there's a bear coming, right, the autonomic state enters in because something needs to be changed quickly. Um, and in the autonomic state, that's when our body is most peaked toward mobilization. Um, that's when my heart starts racing. That's when my limbs are activated and more mobile than ever before. Um, so typically and evolutionarily speaking, like oftentimes when intervention needed to happen, it had to do with me needing to upregulate um, and get myself out of there quickly and do something about it. Um, and, and so I really see that as being, okay, this is the body priming itself for the intervention that's been typically needed the most. Mm. Yeah, I like that, right? Mm -hmm. The state is what primes the body for certain actions. So mm -hmm. for your example, it's like 
when the bear's coming at me, my body's primed to probably run, probably, <laughs> or like maybe fight, right? Yeah. <laughs> but my body's not primed to connect to my husband in that moment. Absolutely. Nor should it be, right? right. Because that's just not going to be helpful. And so it makes sense, right? That it looks to activate in those yeah. moments, especially when there's a perception of threat coming my way. Right. Um, when that feels immediate, when it feels dangerous, it makes sense that it wants to prime me to do something about it. Right. Right. And it, it's almost like there's a trade-off, right? Like in this moment, the trade-off that I'm making is instead of keeping open to connection to my husband, I'm actually trading that for the ability to run away, mm -hmm. to fight this thing, to do something else to protect myself. Absolutely. Yeah. And you sort of hit on um, one of his other ones, right? What mm -hmm. I call the safety radar. I think I sort of heard him say that. And I'm like, oh, he used the word radar. It's a really good word. But this idea of like neuroception, can you talk about that and sort of break that down for us? Oh, yes. I think that this is just huge. Um, and so basically the safety radar, uh, Porges has coined as neuroception, which is basically the brain's capacity and honestly, the whole body's capacity to look for cues of threat or of safety. So maybe you even do this when you walk into a new place for the first time, you're kind of scanning the room. And if I see six people that I know and I'm good friends with, my body goes into a different state in those moments. Whereas if I walk into a room, I don't recognize anyone and I'm getting dirty looks on top of it. I'm going to get a little bit upregulated in that moment. Like that doesn't feel super safe for me. Um, and, and so as our bodies and our brains are scanning for, is this place safe? Um, or is it more threatening? Our bodies have an automatic response to that, right? Which again, makes such good sense. If I'm walking into, if I'm walking down a dark alleyway and I'm seeing a few people that are making me anxious, right? It makes sense for my uh, senses to be heightened right? And just to be more aware in those moments. I'm going to grip my purse a little bit tighter to me. Like I I'm going to be prepared, right? So that my body can be queued up and ready for that threat. Uh, and, and so the same is true, right? In safety. It's like, all right, I see six people I know in this alleyway and it's brightly lit and everyone's singing and having such a good time. And it's like, oh, this is safe. I know this place, this is okay, right? And that's no longer as necessary in those moments. But just like we said, it's all about the body is so good at priming itself, right? For what is gonna be needed, what kind of safety measures are gonna be needed um, in this setting. So that's what neuroception really does. It's not this choice either. Yeah. I don't walk in and choose like, oh, am I gonna, is this gonna be safe or not? Um, but that's just an automatic function that our brain and bodies have. Um, just to assess what is my level of safety here and therefore how should I respond internally? Yeah. I think that last sentence was a really clear description, right? Neuroception mm -hmm. is our safety radar that is mm -hmm. automatically going in the background mm -hmm. that primes us on how to respond. Mm -hmm. So if I'm getting cues of danger, right? If my radar is mm -hmm. picking up danger, 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 automatically... Mm -hmm. my body's primed to protect itself yeah. i'm getting cues of safety hey there's my friends they're all happy to see me mm -hmm. i can see the smile on their face my body's priming automatically mm -hmm. to connect to those people yeah 
Yeah. Beautiful. Absolutely. Okay. So here's a concept that um, I've heard him say a lot about, and mm -hmm. I think I get it, but I think I'm missing parts of it, right? Break. Mm -hmm. The idea of like um, vagal break. Yes, absolutely. Which as we've been talking about, um, you know, all the, the different ways that our body can utilize that threat response and it activates and it kind of gets into that autonomic state, um, the break is necessary. <laughs> um, what the break does is it allows um, the vagal break, they, they call it, um, really is this space kind of a, a, from what I understand of this kind of rest that's allowed for that I cannot perpetually be in this autonomic state, mm. right? And that there is, I would burn out, right? That's not what we're meant to do. Um, and so really this vagal break, um, not that it totally turns off. Again, this is constantly, the neuroception is always taking place. I'm always regulating for the presence of safety. Um, but this is kind of this, almost like this transition of a vagal break, just kind of giving my body almost a chance to like recover in those moments because it can't always be in this autonomic state. We would just burn out <laughs> um, if our body was always in this state of activation. But that's really primarily the ways that I've um, understood it. Yeah, so it sounds like, well, I think this kind of goes right next to high, high hierarchy, right? Which is sort of like his next concept. But I sound like the idea of the vagal break is social engagement has to, doesn't turn, it's when social engagement turns off that automatically we go into um, states of fight or flight, right? States of mobilization. Yeah. That's, right. that's, that's sort of what I hear you sort of saying. Yes, absolutely. We need, we need, um, if we sense that we're completely on our own in something, then there has to be a degree of alertness because mm -hmm. nobody's got my back here. Right. Which means I need to. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. So this does, this dovetails into hierarchy, which is one of his mm -hmm. other concepts. Can mm -hmm. you sort of break that down for us? Yeah. Again, I think, uh, this hierarchy really speaks to kind of the three branches in my understanding of it. Um, the first being kind of a dorsal response, um, which is basically the freeze response and the most simple of organisms have this. And I know I mean to be funny in this, I promise. Um, but I think the way that I've simplified my understanding of it is like, I'm going to shut down. So because I sense that death is coming and I want it to be as painless as possible. Yeah. That's really how I understand it, right? Because when you think about the most basic organ, they don't have a lot of options uh, in that state. And so that really is the most protective function that they have, mm -hmm. right? But as you get more advanced, um, further up the food chain, often, if you will, um, they do like more complex organisms have the capacity to fight or flight. They have the capacity to defend themselves or to protect themselves or to flee. Um, we see that all over the animal kingdom, um, that they have that propensity to use fight or flight in order to protect themselves. Um, but also uh, they still preserve that dorsal function of just shutting down. 
to die the most painless death possible. And so even as we get further up in complexity, we maintain those most primitive states um, because we see that in mammals as well. Um, and what really sets mammals apart according to polyvagal theory is that they have this most advanced branch of the vagus nerve, which allows them uh, to connect uh, and for comfort and for a sense of safety and to be soothed in that way. Um, that this is the most advanced, you're not gonna find this in reptiles or amphibians or, or non-mammalians uh, because this is, this is more advanced evolutionarily um, and what that allows us to do um, is to have another option besides fight or flight in those moments, besides just shutting down in moments of stress. I think it's the one that's the least talked about and so it's not really seen as a viable option. And yet we see this, we see, I think primarily, and we'll talk about this I'm sure more later, especially in babies. <laughs> babies are the best at this, right? At connection because they haven't been dropped and they haven't been hurt. And when they have a need for connection, they will let you know immediately. <laughs> they will always get your attention, right? Until they go and respond to. Um, and I think just how, what a basic need that is in our most uh, vulnerable um, in infant state shows us, you know, that this really is core uh, to who we are as, as people. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm going to sort of try to summarize what you just said, it's like in ourselves as people, but also mm -hmm. in the history of like animals, you see that we have a hierarchy in how we respond mm -hmm. to threat. So really simple animals, kind of like you were saying, like reptiles, mm -hmm. they respond to threat just by freezing. Mm-hmm. That's the only back. option I have. <laughs> the only option that, that they have, right? It's like back to being, you know, a kid and like picking up lizards and they would just like freeze. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, that's yeah. what they're doing. That's their only response yeah. to this thing. They that's my only shot here. Yeah. And that's what we do, right? Mm -hmm. When we feel like we're about to die, we, we do the same thing. Mm -hmm. We're not, we're not safety radars going off. Mm -hmm. And it says, hey, you're, you're going to die. And it's blaring mm -hmm. in the background. We go into mm -hmm. a freeze response. Mm -hmm. And then the next response up, which turns off the freeze response, mm -hmm. is the mobilization response. It's the fight or flight response. Right. And the fight or flight response, and I, I don't even know, like, would you say it's kind of like, I don't even know what's a good, like, sort of image for this. Maybe like, I don't know, some sort of lone predator, right? That like, its, it's main way of dealing with threat is to fight or flight. Yeah, that's it absolutely and i think birds too right like sometimes right, yeah. they'll get big with other birds but a yeah. lot of times they're just like i'm out of here and i've yeah. got that option right depending on what's coming for them it's just this very simple not like i'm either fighting and trying to defend myself and get big and get that war yeah. right i'm i'm looking to get out of here as quickly right. as possible but right. the yeah, as the com the potential for complex thought grows, yeah. so does the expanded capacity um, for how to handle those threat responses. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And then for us, mm -hmm. as mammals, as people, we have this ability to turn off fight or flight mm -hmm. by turning on social engagement. Mm -hmm. And you see that with like kids. And it sort of gets into like the last sort of big idea, right? Of co-regulation. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 
So tell us about co-regulation and, and what that means. Because my understanding is co-regulation is when we're able to use the social engagement system to deal with threat, to deal with problems Absolutely. like pain. Yes. And there are so many terms around co-regulation, but I think capturing it with an image was most helpful mm. for me first. And it really is like if you've spent any time around kids, which I know you have, Jordan, um, or you spend <laughs> yes, any time, right, especially around babies. And let's say that there's a fall there, right, and knee is skinned and, oh, just, you know, the tears are coming, right? And if there's a safe bond, if this child has been cared for, his arms will just immediately rise in the air and he'll walk over to mom or dad or grandma or whoever's close that I trust. Right. And whoever's there will just scoop him up. Right. And maybe do some rocking behavior. Um, but also just kind of activate that shushing response. Right. And just that's the picture of co-regulation right? That there is this huge moment of distress, right? And then he probably still hurts, <laughs> right? There's, it's probably still bleeding, right? But it doesn't totally take away that pain. I haven't taken away all potential threat in the future, right? But when I don't feel alone in it, when I feel cared for, when I feel protected, when I feel safe, right? My body doesn't need to activate in the same way. Um, and so it's really, really interesting too. And I won't go too much into this. I just think it's fascinating. Um, but there's a lot of research too on interpersonal synchrony, which is looking at the synchronous heartbeat, um, synchronous, even like vocal tone, um, things like that, that in that uh, couples, that family members, that parents who are able to achieve that level of synchrony show higher levels of relational satisfaction, right? Which ultimately speaks to this co-regulatory experience that in moments of distress, I'm able to reach out to a safe figure and the shelter and the protection and the safety that they provide regulates my body in a way that I just can't do on my own. And I want to clarify here too, because I think this is what Porges does a really good job of because I've read critics that are like, well, doesn't that breed codependence? Do you always need someone there? Does someone always need to be with you to regulate? Like that's not possible. But basically what Porges says, if you get enough co-regulatory experiences, right, that internalizes some of that comfort and safety and connection so that when my kid is eight, and cry or in falls and scrapes a knee, he doesn't cry in the same way. He doesn't need to be held and rocked and scooped. But because I did that when he was two and three, he doesn't need me to do that for him when he's eight because he has internalized that sense of comfort and safety. Uh, and that goes with him even when I'm not there. Yeah. You know, not being an expert like, like you on this, the way I think about it is confidence. It's like, if I get enough practice that dad is going to show up and then I can be okay, yeah. then at some point, I don't have to always go to him Yeah. because I have a confidence that I'm going to be okay mm-hmm. and I can carry a piece of dad with me, even when he's not around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This actually happened this morning. I don't remember what happened, but my littlest one, who's, I don't know, one and a half now, mm-hmm. um, fell down and I picked him up 
And I just, he was crying. And I just swayed with him. And I mean, it took maybe three minutes, two or three minutes, which is a long time, you know, in our, at least for me, it feels like a long time in <laughs> modern age, right? But like, he's like crying. And he always does this. He always cries. And then he gets real quiet and just like lays his head on my shoulder and he's just there. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, is he asleep? Is he like, what is going on? Yeah. And then he always makes some move to like go play. Like he points to getting mm-hmm. down or to a toy or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then he's off to the races again. Mm-hmm. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, through a polyvagal lens, like we're soothing. And, and then that moment of silence is just him taking in that co-regulatory moment, right? That it's not just me getting deactivated, but this is me actually like enjoying this soothing. And I think this is the coolest part um, is that in that co-regulation, when the social engagement system has been activated, it doesn't promote this codependence. It promotes actually this exploration right. and okay, I'm ready to get back out there because I know I have a safe base to return to. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, if we thought that us holding our kids was going to mean that we could never put them down, that wouldn't be what's best for them. Right. But we see that in that example there, once I have what I need, once I'm able to kind of downregulate myself, right through the comfort of another and fully drink from that co-regulatory experience, then I'm ready to get back out there. I'm ready to do the things that I need to. I don't always perpetually need to be on dad's shoulder, uh, but it's safe for me to go back out there. I know that I've always got this to go back to. That's really interesting because I hadn't thought of it that way. Like I, I think I understood the co-regulatory part of that, mm-hmm. but the part you just added on, I think is really important. Of like, mm-hmm. And then at the end of that, that's when he's ready to go play. That's yeah. actually him. Um, that's how you know it's not codependence. Yes, absolutely. Right? Once he gets enough of that, then that's when he wants to go out and explore. Mm-hmm. Exactly. If I have my fill of that, that's when I'm fully able to explore. That's when I'm fully able to try new things and to get a little brave um, and new things that I try because even if this goes bad, I'm going to have a safe place to go back to. It's not all just going to go downhill. I almost think that this is why a lot of parents sometimes we get frustrated with our kids and we say they don't learn, right? Because they'll do the same thing over again. And it's like, probably what happened was because they got enough safety and co-regulation with you, they're brave enough to go try that thing again. <laughs> Let's see if I can figure this thing out. Let's see if I can match this true. thing. It's true, which is annoying as a parent. I can't <laughs> that's not true, right? Get off but the table. Also, Get off the yeah. table. <laughs> but also, especially in those moments where they're trying to figure something out or they really have this goal in mind, oh my gosh, that's like how big tech is built, right? That's how like new innovative industry is created is from people that weren't afraid to fail, right? And had enough safety to be like, I'm just going to try this. I'm just going to try. And if I feel no big deal, right. Um, it doesn't change who I am, but I'm going to take some risks here. And I think that's actually one of the most beautiful things that you can see in your child is this tenacity, right. When there's a goal within reason, uh, because it, it just speaks right to their determination. It speaks to their resilience. Um, but I do, I think that that's a lot harder to get without the presence of safety. Let's go back through these one more time and see if mm-hmm. I can give a, a really brief sort of summary of these, right? Let's start with safety radar. We constantly have a safety radar 
that is priming our bodies to respond to comfort or threat. Mm-hmm. State. State means that when our bodies are primed to respond to safety or threat, we're also not primed to do the, the other part. Mm-hmm. So if I'm primed to protect, to protect myself, I'm not primed to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, hierarchy says that there's actually a, a hierarchy, right, of how we respond. So if we can use social engagement, that's great. But when that break is released, um, that's when we go into fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And if that can help us, that's great. But that's not enough. That turns mm-hmm. off, right? And then automatically underneath that is this sort of freeze response. Yeah. And can I, sorry, yeah. jump in yeah, just because yeah. I think that this is an important part of hierarchy too, that I do think that as mammals specifically, actually the greater the threat, the more primitive the response, Yes. ironically, right? And so if there's like a small threat, something like kind of bad happens during the day, then I have no problem like reaching out for connection or telling someone like, oh, I got stuck in traffic today. That was super annoying, yeah. right? And I have no problem saying that. But if it's a bigger response, right, where Um, I feel attacked in that moment, that's going to cause me to reach for a more primitive threat. And if my life is in danger, if I'm attacked in some way, that is going to make me reach for my most primitive response of all. Um, I think that that's another important part of hierarchy and just how to make sense of how our body chooses to reach for those. Yeah, The intensity of the stress, the intensity of Mm -hmm. the threat also influences which response we use. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the idea of break, right, is the idea that um, the higher responses turn off the lower responses, right? So fight or flight turns off freeze and social engagement turns off fight or flight. And then the idea that we as mammals have a unique way of dealing with threat, which is co-regulation, mm-hmm. which sets us up for independence, Mm-hmm. If we can drink from the well of co-regulation enough, then we're free to mm. be independent, mm. to explore, to build, to be creative. That's when we're at our best. Mm. Beautiful summaries, Jordan. Well said. I had help. I had help. <laughs> so um, this goes back to something that I think is one of the big differences between how um, Sapolsky Mm-hmm. talks about some of the things in his book mm-hmm. and Porges thinks about things, mm-hmm. right? Because my understanding is Porges would say that problems arise when we're stuck. The problem mm-hmm. is not that we have a freeze response. The problem mm-hmm. is not that we have a threat, uh, a fight or flight response. The problem is not that we have a co-regulatory need. Mm-hmm. The problem is when we're stuck in one mm-hmm. and we can't move out of it mm-hmm. or when we're constantly perceiving a threat that's not present yeah and and especially like that idea of rigidity yeah being stuck that my body knows one way when stress comes right and it doesn't have the flexibility to decide the intensity of the stretch uh, stressor should dictate the branch that's activated exactly right and it almost sounds like part of what he feels like and what polyvagal theory says is that it's our, it's our ability to feel safe that helps us move out of stress response back into um, 
states of connection. Right. Acknowledging that primarily the stressors that we're facing now in 2021 or 22, whenever this is done, uh, are not really centered on, I need my autonomic system to mobilize and get me out of here. Right. right. That most of it is psychosocial pressures, right. Or external pressures weighing on me, not necessarily threatening my life physically. Right. But socially, um, mentally, all of these things right. emotionally. And so looking to reach more for the, that co-regulatory experience to get us out of those moments. Yeah. So, and I think that's sort of like where they sort of say the same thing and where they sort of say something different, right? So Sapolsky says the same thing, right? That the reason that zebras don't get ulcers is that they don't have this internal um, world, right? This zebra is not worried about what that zebra thinks about him. <laughs> Right, this zebra faces a lion, and then once the lion is gone, he turns off his stress response mm -hmm. and goes back about his day. Mm -hmm. So not only do they not have that internal world, the psychosocial mm -hmm. sort of stressors, mm -hmm. they also um, face acute stressors, not chronic stressors. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that seems to be very similar to what Porges is saying and what mm -hmm. polymagal theory says. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that, though, is it seems to me and you you clarify this for me that you know Sapolsky in classic stress research says it is your cognition that mm -hmm. is off right you can't stop thinking you're making up these imaginary um threats like that's part of the problem you have a, you have this psychology mm -hmm. that allows you to imagine a threat and if you can imagine a threat, then you can be, you can imagine it anytime, which means you can have a chronic stress mm -hmm. at any moment. Mm -hmm. Whereas, so, so classic stress research seems to say it is that fact that we can imagine our stress, stressors mm -hmm. that can chronically turn on our stress response. Mm -hmm. Whereas Porges seems to say it is um, how well we can co-regulate Mm -hmm. that dictates if our stress response is chronic or not. Yes, absolutely. And so both of them kind of have different just conceptualizations that where you see the similarities just because there, there are only so many ways you can interpret the research that's out there, right? right? But yes, I, I do think that this idea too of, you know, the social engagement system, the ventral vagal complex, it's relatively new. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, and so I think also that's maybe like a nod to, um, you know, the, the publication of, of the book, um, that just maybe that wasn't quite caught up because, and I also think that this acute stress response is a lot easier to measure. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really, as I was I've been looking more into the research, it's easy to say, let's put a threat right in front of someone right? And then see what the body does. And we can make more concrete interpretations about that because we can set up that scenario. Yeah. Chronic stressors are much harder to draw concrete conclusions about. Um, and so I think part of like the difference in interpretation is a result of that is that there just is more ambiguity there because this is a lot harder 
to understand and draw concrete conclusions about the impact that this has on the body. I think what they do both have in common though, is you're right. It is this idea of rigidity that we get stuck in an aroused state um, and not sexually aroused, but just like physiologically, like preparing for threat that we get stuck in that state. Um, And that has really devastating consequences for our body. If that isn't regulated, Porges would say that, you know, it's through social engagement that you can regulate that and mitigate the effects. Um, And and that's kind of what is so new about the polyvagal theory. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's true. Right. I mean, if you think about the fact that the first edition of this book came out in 94 and the first polyvagal paper came out in 95, this book has not been updated since 2004. It's like, there's some stuff that is, that we've learned that's, that's, um, that is newer that hasn't been put in. So that's part of why there's that difference. Mm-hmm. And then another reason why there's that difference is um, the research. Mm-hmm. It's easier to, you know, take you in a room and scare you than <laughs> it is to like measure chronic stress over time. Like how do you, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but also there's a conceptual difference of one, mm-hmm. one says, hey, this is, this is your internal psychology. Mm-hmm. And one says, this is a measure of your ability to co-regulate with other people. Mm-hmm. But both agree that the problem that we run into is chronic activation mm-hmm. of the stress response. So these things are actually good, mm-hmm. but when they go on long-term, they can have all sorts of um, unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm which is what we're going to get into next week, right? Next week, right. we're going to talk all about that. Um, all about how, well, actually next week, we're going to do a deeper dive into how the autonomic nervous system works. Mm-hmm. Cause that's going to sort of set the platform for us to understand the different body systems that are impacted mm-hmm. by um, the stress response. Absolutely. So that's sort of where we're going. Mm-hmm. Um, as you be, you know, we're almost at time. We've about ten-ish minutes left, maybe a little less. And I just wanted to see, like, we talked a lot about classic stress research and Robert through Robert Sapolsky's sort of lens, mm-hmm. and sort of the new stuff through mm-hmm. the polyvagal lens. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you feel like we've missed? Anything that you feel like we have to touch on? Mm-hmm. Give people a ground-level view of stress and the body. Yeah. And I do, I think that this is, and then maybe this is just me, but it's like, okay, good information. What do I do with it? Um, but that, I think that's just where my brain's good at going to. And so if it's okay, I just love to like touch a little bit, maybe on what this is like reframed for me, just the yeah. parts that we've covered today, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think ultimately, especially as a clinician, Right. I I see people coming in and saying, you know, I I'm here to like take care of my anxiety. I'm here because I'm stressed all the time and I don't want to be. And I feel that in myself. Sometimes I'll lay down at night and just like, oh, my gosh, like I cannot turn my body off. Right. And I think as silly as this sounds, I think understanding what is happening in the body really helps me to kind of talk to myself differently in those places where it says, okay, my body's not doing something wrong. It's not malfunctioning in this spot. It's not because I'm broken. It's not because, 
you know, I'm such an anxious person and I'm so broken and this, this is wrong. And, um, especially, you know, down here in the South, it's like, oh, well, you're not trusting God enough or, or whatever it is, you know, like, oh, I need to do better about that. Don't be an anxious person. Nobody likes to be around an anxious person and just our, our self-talk when we notice our autonomic state being present, being activated, our self-talk can really feed in, I think oftentimes to that threat response and can build that threat response. Because now, because I'm so anxious, because I can't calm down, people aren't even gonna wanna be around me. I'm not fun to be around. Like I, I don't wanna be that, for, and it just kind of continues to compound on itself um, and, and what I've seen. And so I think understanding this information has really helped me to say to myself, I'm not malfunctioning here. My body is responding with stress and it makes sense. Look at these pressures that are here right now. And even though my life's not in danger, right? My body's opting for something, right? That's gonna protect itself. It's trying to mobilize me so I can do something about all the stress that's here. What a good thing right? It's working. <laughs> My body's working. It's detecting threats the way that it should. I'm not crazy. I'm not out of control. My anxiety isn't going to swallow me whole. My body's doing what it is meant to do when it perceives a threat, right? And a threat is present and I can usually find it pretty readily if I actually think about it. And I think ultimately what this research has done for me personally, um, and then I am able to share that with clients as well, is just kind of normalize when my body gets activated and understand the function that my anxiety serves so that I'm no longer beating myself up for responding that way, but I'm honoring my body, right? It's a good thing that I have. And no, maybe that's not the most necessary or helpful response now, but I do want to honor the function that it has. So I, I think that's just a helpful piece um, of how I've like kind of taken this information. I love learning about it, but I also want it to impact my functioning too. Yeah. I love that. Right. It's like you know, learning about this stuff has given me a deep appreciation for how my body responds. That when I'm anxious, my body's trying to tell me something really important. Mm -hmm. Hey, you don't feel safe. Yeah. And that's important information. Mm -hmm. and so I can validate that I can talk myself mm -hmm. through that as opposed to going in the opposite direction and saying well here I go again I'm too much I'm overwhelming <laughs> I'm doing this thing I shouldn't be doing yeah. and then it compounds it makes it worse so for, exactly. so for you the reframe has been so important absolutely like for me and I think it's made me a better partner and a better friend and a better daughter and sister and all of these roles because too when other people's anxiety comes up I'm able to say okay that makes sense yeah like that makes sense why you'd feel that way yeah right and it kind of gives me more space for them more grace for them as well because I look to kind of understand the function that anxiety um serves uh that stress serves instead of just labeling it all as bad yeah, I love that. I love that. Oh, okay, one more validation thing, and then I promise I'm done. There's also, have, have you heard of the Yerkes-Dobson bell curve? I have. I don't know. So it basically, if, if any, any people are science people out there, it basically has 
anxiety kind of on the x-axis just on the bottom that uh horizontal horizontal yeah axis uh and then on the y-axis that vertical it has performance and it has this bell curve which basically shows to a degree the greater the level of anxiety actually the greater the performance level eventually it hits this tipping point where it starts to go down because it's like all right too much anxiety decreases that performance but also that anxiety that stress that sets in that indicates that we care it indicates that we're invested right that we care enough about something to notice a response right which is also a really good thing um and i'm glad (laughs) that i care enough about my job to be stressed about it i'm glad that i care enough about my family to worry about them, right? I'm glad I worry, I value my own life enough, right? To be anxious when it feels like things are spinning out of control. Um, And and so I think ultimately what this research says is it just kind of validates some of my anxiety, which ironically tends to decrease it um, (laughs) (laughs) when I recognize the, the good function that it has. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, right. It goes back to that sense of, hey, actually, we do need this. Mm-hmm. And we want to totally, totally validate that at some points it gets too much, right? When it's on the yeah. other side of that curve, it can feel yeah. overwhelming. But mm-hmm. let's also validate that we need these protective mm-hmm. responses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for myself, the big thing that I did not get until, it feels really recent, mm-hmm. Um was this idea of state as intervening variable, mm-hmm. right? And like, if you look at the social engagement system, right? When, when you're in that state that's primed for connection, your body's also primed for health, growth, and restoration, right? And I don't know why I didn't get that, but like what that means is that's when you heal the best. And the flip side of that is when you are uh, in states of fight or flight or states of freeze, your body is diverting resources away from healing, growing, repairing to this stress response, these different stress responses in order to keep you alive. But that also means that you're not healing as well. You're not... um, growing your cell cell repairs down right and it's like i didn't get that that was the mind body connection mm-hmm. and suddenly it makes sense to me why there are all these studies that say people who do mindfulness um or people who have higher you know levels of um connectedness mm-hmm. heal faster they get mm-hmm. through these diseases faster mm-hmm. they have a higher rate of recovery from whatever Mm -hmm. this disease is right and people Mm -hmm. who don't people who are more isolated chronically lonely um Mm -hmm. these are the people who have you know a lot of unexplained medical issues Mm -hmm. right maybe chronic pain maybe um chronic migraines maybe Mm -hmm. other sorts of you know mind body things right Mm -hmm. um and it's like oh like this is the connection This is the connection. That's what they mean by state is intervening variable mm-hmm. for not just your emotional health, but also for your physical health. Mm-hmm. I think it really appreciate. I, I love what you're saying there. It's so important to highlight because it really 
appreciates, right? The wholeness of the person, right? And acknowledging the wholeness of the person as much as we want to separate them, right? That that's just not accurate. (laughs) That's not how we function. And I do, I think that um, that's what polyvagal does is it pulls in both um, mind and body to understand the complementary relationship that exists there instead of this dualistic one. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think that's the thing that's like been blowing my mind recently. And, and, and then even, you know, like when you, I think when you start to really get that, you also begin to see how the body sets the sets the tone for how the mind Mm -hmm. thinks. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, absolutely. I drink a cup of coffee and I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm jittery. But that also means that I'm more likely to be irritable and anxious. Mm-hmm. So the body is setting the state, setting the tone for the mind and for your mm-hmm. emotional life. Mm-hmm. So it goes both ways. Like Absolutely. there's this whole person integration that's happening mm-hmm. that sometimes we don't even really pay homage to. Yeah. And we so, miss a lot because of that. A lot because of it, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and Porter says that, right? He says that's one of the biggest problems, I think, in the medical community, right? Where like people have these um, end organ sort of issues, right? An issue in your, I don't know, heart, right? And it's like, well, they give you this medicine, but they haven't dealt with the fact that your underlying state is working against the medicine. Yeah. And your underlying state has probably had a big contribution to the problem in your heart. Feels like a pretty big miss. <laughs> Feels like a pretty big miss. <laughs> How much right? impact can this medication have? Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I do, um, I think integrating the both really is, is what gives most hope, right? For different results for people. If we can acknowledge people in their wholeness, um, we're more likely to, to set them up for success when we try both intervention and medication or whatever is the case. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's a really hopeful place to be in, but that does not make gorgeous an easy man to be. He's a bit of a trailblazer. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's a bit of a trailblazer. Well, Dr. Conroy, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. That sounds great. This has been fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs>